Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customised insoles available in high, medium and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us. That's medical.currex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome back for part two of our chat with Dr. Nathan Brown and Dr. Matt Klein, runners and physical therapists from the Doctors of Running website. Last week, we talked about the typical running-related injuries that they both see in the clinic, tips on managing load, and strategies for improving running performance. If you haven't had a chance to catch up with the episode, do take a moment to jump back one week in your feed. It's 20 minutes well spent as a launch pad for today's chat on shoes. Today, we get the lowdown on running shoe technology, what really works, and how to help runners choose the best shoe for them. Is Matt kicking us off by addressing the triple whammy, fit, performance, and injury? The most common questions we get, and often two of the big ones are, what's the best shoe for me? And then what shoe is going to keep me injury-free or prevent X, Y, or Z? You know, the, the research hasn't really caught up with some of the comments that have made, especially by certain running companies or certain people. And you just have to be a little cautious when it comes to saying things like what shoe is going to keep me injury free, right? Because we there's injuries, running injuries, they're so, so multifactorial. One of the biggest things in the industry, and I'm sure most people that are runners know, they've heard that, you know, the, the pronation paradigm was the big thing that everybody, you know, if you want to pre- prevent injuries, you need to have pronation control. We now know from a lot of evidence that have come from some of the military studies and ongoing that if you just throw any runner in a shoe that has pronation control, that's not necessarily going to prevent injuries, right? And what we've seen is that paradigm works really well for people that have pronation-related injuries, you know, posterior tibial tendinopathy, you know, a little bit of Achilles stuff, things that tend to get, the tissues that tend to get overloaded with pronation, that paradigm may work for them, but everybody else, it doesn't seem to work for because again, you have to be specific. So we've started moving away from that and started looking at things like the comfort filter or the preferred movement pathway and going, you know, it's really hard to match people to shoes now that we've understood the pronation paradigm doesn't work for everyone. And so where I would start is start looking at finding a pair of shoes that's comfortable for you. And that's one of the, we've seen the comfort paradigm, right, from Ben Onig saying, if you put a pair of shoes on and they are comfortable and they're, you know, they are running shoes, right? That that's going to be a good place to start. And this is part of where we started the website with Doctors Are Running is helping educate people to figure out what shoes work for them just because people are so different. 
So for me to be able to tell you what shoe might work for you, it'd be exactly the same as if, you know, you came to me and were like, hey, we haven't done an evaluation, but what's the best exercise for me? It's we got to know a little bit more about you. And then when it comes to injury stuff, you're going to have to figure out what shoes can your body handle? You know, a lot of people are getting really excited about all these carbon fiber plated super foam shoes, but those are not necessarily appropriate for everyone, right? There's no like, you know, the phrase, the phrase here is there's no such thing as a free lunch. There are benefits and risks to every type of footwear, and you have to balance out and figure out what's going to work for what my goals are and what my function is. Nathan, if I walk into the shop, into the shoe shop tomorrow and say, can I take home these five pairs of shoes? I need to run in them and see which ones feel comfortable for me. I think the the shop assistant's probably going to say, uh, sorry, no deal. So how do you get around this as a regular person? Because you can't sort of try these shoes, run with them for a month and then decide, actually, no, they don't feel good. One of the things that hopefully people have access to is there are local running stores who allow you to come in and go for a five to 10 minute run in a pair of shoes on a treadmill or even the store down a couple hours from me at moving shoes. They let you take it outside and go for a run. There's also online running stores like Running Warehouse that you can try a shoe for 90 days. And if that shoe doesn't work for you, you can send it back. And I've sent back a pair of shoes that I ran it about 45 miles in and they took them back without a blink. Obviously, you can't abuse the system, but there are a few options that way. It's just very difficult to know what you are going to be comfortable in and what is going to bring your foot through its preferred pathway without trying shoes on. And that is part of the that's part of the game. As you become a more experienced runner, if you're advising patients, you can be helping them process through what the differences in their shoes are. Does the shoe have a rocker? Is the shoe higher or lower stack? Does the shoe have a higher or low drop? And you can start to help them pierce out which factors for them have been consistent with feeling good and which ones might be the things that are making it feel less comfortable. You know, one of the things that Dr. Laurent Malzu has also looked at is shoe rotations. And so when we think about injury reduction and running, and this is just one study, there's limitations to that reality, but if somebody was running in their typical number one shoe less than 51% of the time, they found in those people that there was a 39% reduction in injury risk just by having a slight change in the footwear underneath you because running is so repetitive that giving a little bit of variability potentially is making a pretty big difference in what sort of overuse injuries might be coming. So that's something else for people is if you have, the patient has the capital on the front end to pick up two pairs of shoes to try, that can be helpful uh, as a part of their way of using shoes as a tool to reduce injury. And so the same shoe or two different shoes and rotate them? Two different shoes and rotate them. Yeah. And, and another one part is because they have different platforms underneath that give a little bit of different stimulus. The second is that the foam within the shoe does compress while you run, and then it can reform that matrix by the time you put it on again. Because my challenge has always been you get on the treadmill in the shop for five, 10 minutes, and maybe you feel great. And then you get the shoes home and you run for a week or a few weeks. And then you realize that, no, these are really uncomfortable, but I just didn't pick that up in a five or 10 minute run. So it's great to know that there are companies that offer that for sure. Patience is necessary especially when it comes to longer races, we'll always encourage people, do not change your shoes at the last second. If you're doing half marathons, marathons, this needs to be something you've gotten comfortable with and confirmed that this is the shoe that's gonna you know, take you through this race. 
Let's talk about a few specific aspects of shoes. And one of them is the drop height. Let's talk a bit about what that means and, and how you would sort of help someone who wants to transition from a high drop shoe to a low drop or even a zero drop shoe and, and maybe why they would want to do that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there was there was a lot of talk about that a couple of years ago, and I think people are still interested because now, based on some of the kind of the minimalist phase that came through, we have a lot more variability and heel toe offset, which means people have more options, which can be really good because people have such different mechanics. It can also be really confusing. So when you're running in a lower heel drop shoe and by heel drop, by operational definition, that's referring to the difference between the back in height between the back of the heel and the, and the forefoot. So you're kind of usually on this slope. Traditional shoes will be somewhere in the realm of 10 to 12 millimeters difference. So you, and now you're seeing more shoes that have much greater variability. You've got eight millimeter, you've got six, four, and even zero where the front of the shoe and the back of the shoe are at the exact same height. When you start lowering or raising the drop, you're just, you're changing what tissues are being loaded and what tissues are going to be working a little bit more. So we know from some of the early evidence that if you have a higher heel drop shoe, you tend, again, not always, but a lot of times you tend to load structures up higher. So your knee, hip, some people that heel strike there, you'll load the anterior tib or some of the front structures just a little bit more versus when you go into a lower heel shoe, you need more mobility from your calf. You're going to get more propulsion from the calf muscles, right? Because there's more range of motion acquired. So you have to realize that you're loading different tissue, which means that you're making a change. So if somebody's interested in doing this, they're going, hey, you know, I'd really like to start running in a lower drop or a zero drop shoe. I've been hearing about this stuff. You need to make sure that it's that you're going to take the time to transition. It's just like adding a new training program. You've got to make the time to adequately condition, especially stuff like your calves, your Achilles, right, which gets loaded a lot more and people will give time for the muscle to, to recover, but we don't really talk to people. People don't know as much about how long it takes tendons to recovery model. You got to give your body time to adjust to these new loads. And what we encourage people, those that are interested, is it might be good, you know, if you if you want to keep your same running volume, maybe think about a transitional shoe, a shoe that maybe has a middle range drop. So instead of being going from 10 to 12 to zero, Maybe you go to eight or you go to six millimeter drop and, and companies will will have this listed on there. You definitely need to test it because sometimes that that number varies, right? That's a static measurement. We know that dynamically when you load shoes, that changes a little bit. So you got to test this stuff out and talk to experts or talk to your people at your local running store about, hey, where's that? But a transitional shoe might be good. If you want to go to zero drop stuff, you're going to need to take time. And it's, there's some requirements, right? Where we talk about making sure you have adequate calf strength. Can you do 25 single leg heel raises? Do you have enough ankle dorsiflexion? Can you handle eccentric heel drops? Can you handle some single leg hops barefoot or in a lower drop shoe? Can you handle that elastic load? We don't usually suggest just jumping straight into it. We suggest just use your older shoe and then the newer one you want to use, maybe that once a week, kind of start easing into it and slowly increase that volume. But the key is take your time to transition and really make sure that your calf, Achilles and your ankle can handle what you're going to ask of it, because that's you're now shifting way more load there. I think the other the, the other important thing in this conversation is there really isn't evidence to say you should transition to a low or high drop shoe. They they both are continuing to put out similar injury profiles. It's not a major factor in in what is creating 
pain-free running or improved running economy or whatever. It's just a factor of a shoe. And so if you are excited about going to zero drop and you have a patient who's passionate about natural running, you can help them get there safely because there are risks to the quick transition. I would argue that it's not so much getting to us the perfect drop shoe. It's more about if you have a patient who wants to do it, helping them do it well. Nathan, let's talk about cushioning. Now, someone might come into the clinic and say, I've had trouble with stress fractures in my feet. What do you reckon about cushioning? Should I just buy a a shoe with more cushion and I'll be fine? I can forget about stress fractures. I think cushioning has been one of those fascinating topics and what we're seeing changes in the running industry. One quick picture there, the stack heights of shoes, the typical stack height of a shoe now, meaning how many millimeters of foam underneath, Before, it used to be around like 20 to 10 millimeters, and now most shoes are sitting in the 30s, 40s. There's even shoes coming out with 50 millimeters of foam underneath the foot. So cushioning in the height is changing a lot. The types of foams that are being used, it used to all be EVA foams. Now you have TPE foams, you have TPU foams, you have PBAX foams, and all these have different properties under the foot, which doesn't answer this person's question about about bone stress. But there's a lot of research being done in the world of cushioning because we're starting to learn some of the paradox behind cushioning itself. One of the things that is consistent, though, for somebody who has a history of stress injuries in the foot, Irene Davis put out a clinical commentary on the resurgence, reemergence of minimal footwear, and she walked through some of the studies that were done that took runners, put them in minimal footwear, and tracked injuries. And I think there's a couple case series. There's 10 runners in one of them, and nine of them had stress fractures, and eight of those stress fractures were in the metatarsals, There's other uh, randomized, you know, of those trials, 17 runners, and they all ran in these shoes. They didn't really have direction on how to transition to these minimal shoes. And they also developed a lot of, whether if it was actual bone stress injuries or just MRI was showing more reaction around the metatarsals. It's pretty clear that if you transition without being prepared, you may be at risk for bone stress injuries. So somebody who has that kind of a history a foam underneath your foot may be something that can help. However, I think a lot more of the question is about, does this person have good intrinsic foot strength? Does this person have the calf strength to be controlling all of the compression and loading that's coming through the foot? And so starting somebody with their, what they can control inside of them, and then using a shoe as an additional tool can definitely be, I think, a a more appropriate way to approach it than just say, hey, you'll be fine if you just go get, get a Hoka shoe or something. And we talked as well about training load monitoring. We talked about nutrition. We talked about relative energy deficiency in sport. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's much broader when we talk about managing stress, bone stress injury than simply what's underneath your feet. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we've seen, we're seeing more and more research come out on this stuff. One of the other things we saw was cushioning was assuming who it works really, really well for. And there was an assumption, especially on runners that might have more body mass, that they need more cushioned shoes. When it came to a protective effect, that actually only applied to the lighter runners, right? So more cushioning only seemed to be protective for that group and not so much for for runners that tend to be bigger and larger. So it was, you know, challenging some assumptions on that. But we also need to realize, again, as we've talked about, it depends on the person. So Nathan mentioned in the cushioning paradox, because we've seen that it doesn't always decrease forces in the way we thought, right? Because, you know, it's basic laws of physics. You can't really get rid of energy. It's got to go somewhere. And there are certain shoes and certain people where more cushioning, this is not everyone, right? So I'm not trying to demonize cushioning at all. 
for some people, it's going to work very, very well. For others, we've seen when you land, there's actually an increased internal joint loading with softer shoes and more cushioning because you're, again, the suspicion is, this is not confirmed, that you have decreased proprioceptive input. So instead of getting, you know, shot going through a lot of the nervous system going, oh, we need to like get the muscles to kick on, there's a delay. And so you're actually landing harder. So you've got greater internal joint stress. Cushioning can be really helpful for a lot of people, but do not assume it's the you know, cure all and it's going to prevent injuries because we've had all these new cushionings we're, we're seeing, like Nathan mentioned, but our injury rates really haven't changed, right? The injury types might be shifting because you're loading different stuff. I, th- I think this is one of the, the biggest marketing things that we hear is about cushioning. It's going to take away shock and it's going to offload your joints and it just doesn't really work out that way. Nathan, what about rocker soles? I think we've all seen a pair of hokers, but what's the rationale for the rocker sole design and what does it do when I'm running? Yeah, hoka is definitely the king of marketing out the the rocker sole and how it can help everybody. (laughs) There are definite impacts of a rocker sole. And just to give a quick definition, it's the shaping of the mainly the forefoot of the shoe. And so it has you would see an upslope of the midsole. And so it might start a little bit thicker through the midfoot, and then it kind of tapers off to the forefoot, which gives kind of this arced shape. The goal of it is to mimic the forefoot rocker through the running cycle. So heel rocker, ankle rocker, forefoot rocker, it's supposed to mimic that. What what an appropriately placed rocker sole in the forefoot can do is offload the calf that has been shown biomechanically, where there is decreased loading through the calf and the posterior chain of the lower leg. And so that that's definitely a real impact of these things when they're put in the right place and have the right stiffness properties. So the studies that are done to look at this don't use a hoka. They don't just put on a hoka necessarily and say, hey, you're going to go run and we're going to look at the impact of the calf. They take a shoe, they create certain stiffness properties, they start the apex of this angle at a specific spot. And when that's done in the perfect way, you can decrease loading in the calf. The interesting part is you can go to any company now and find a rocker sold shoe. You're going to see them in New Balance, like the New Balance 1080 series has a pretty decent rocker on it. It also has what we call toe spring, which is a whole other conversation, but lifts the toes into a little bit of extension, which can be good for some and problematic for others. It's relatively flexible through the forefoot. Then you go to like Asics, they have the Asics Glide Ride. And that shoe has a really stiff rocker. It has a plastic plate through the forefoot. It's really aggressive. It almost feels it when you put that shoe on, it almost feels like you're falling forward. And that's that rolling sensation through the forefoot. You go to Saucony, they have the endorphin shift, um, which is another shoe that has a pretty stiff rocker with no plate just because it has a lot of foam in it. So the impact of a rocker is super dependent on which rocker you're actually putting on your feet. Hoka as well has a little bit of flexibility. So if a rocker has flexibility, it might not take as much off the calf is one that's a little bit stiffer and the apex is placed in the right place for you. So if you have a rocker, forefoot rocker that starts too far distally on the foot, you're not going to actually activate that rocker and get the quote benefit of decreasing calf loading because you ha- you haven't gotten there by the time you're already getting up off your heel. Like Hoka, they, they call theirs the early stage meta rocker. Theirs starts a little bit further back. That will have a different impact on when that offloads your calf or how much. And so... The hype is very present when it comes to rocker soles and it's being integrated everywhere, but how it's integrated, how stiff it is, is going to impact if it actually makes a difference on your calf or not. 
Now, Matt, when I look at a rocker sole shoe, it screams to me somebody who's a heel striker. I'm a four foot striker and I just look at those and go, that's not going to work for me. Am I, is that right? Or am I sort of writing something off that I shouldn't be? Yeah, that's that's definitely not necessarily true. Obviously, a heel, somebody who lands heel versus forefoot are going to have different ankle mechanics when it comes to how you're transitioning, right? So your initial contact, you're going to be more on the front of the foot versus a rear foot striker is going to be obviously starting at the calcaneus. So where you roll through is going to be a little different. I think when it comes to toe spring, that's not something you should like, or I'm sorry, the foot of the a rocker shoe, I'm sorry, you shouldn't write that off. That That may be beneficial to you. It may not be. So somebody that actually likes to have kind of more natural, a little bit flatter, more flexible forefoot, whether you are you are a heel striker or forefoot striker, a rocker may not work for you. But if you want that efficient roll through, then it might be great. I think we're seeing people that can benefit this regardless of their foot strike. So it's definitely not something to write off. Now, when it comes to the rear portion of the rocker, so when you're talking about that heel, that beveled heel, that's going to benefit more a rear foot striker than a forefoot striker. The forefoot striker is going to benefit from everything in like the midfoot forward, depending on where you land. Whereas that rear rocker, the the bevel, that's going to benefit heel strikers much, much more since they're actually landing in there. And there's some early emerging evidence that that may unload certain muscles like either now your anterior structure. So your anterior tibialis, the ankle it changes load. So we've seen from some of the evidence from Sobani and some of these other great researchers that rocker shoes will reduce ankle load, but they start increasing it at the knee joint and especially the hip joint. It's going to d- change load. And for some people, it might be beneficial. You just have to ask, is this appropriate for me and my mechanics? And then also, as Nathan mentioned, is this actually even lining up with my mechanics? The other question that we get asked about things like rocker sold shoes and even super shoes is, when you use something like this that's supposed to replace what your body is normally doing, are you going to get weaker? We don't have an actual answer to that question. We do have evidence that if you're transitioning to minimal shoes, there can be strengthening of your intrinsics. Like that can happen if, as you do it appropriately. Potentially, then the logic would flow that if you take away all of that demand from your body, you could get weaker in your feet. We don't know that for sure. But this is one of those points where maybe this is where the idea of a shoe rotation comes into play, where If you have the ability to have different shoes, you can use them for different purposes. And a rocker might be more fun for you, but if you want to maintain or even help as a strengthening regimen to get stronger, you can be working some shoes with a little more flexibility, a little bit lower stack into your rotation as a way to kind of train both upper chain and lower chain. Nathan Brown, Matt Klein, thanks to you both for joining me to chat about running shoes, cutting through some of this hype and sharing a whole ton of really helpful information. It's been great to chat. Thanks so much. It was a joy to be here. It was a joy to be here as well. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.